to the book of Romans this morning. And um, this is a, a meaty, um, dense, in a lot of ways, uh, teaching. And so I just want to, again, invite us to breathe together. And um, Leah, I'm so grateful for um, your invitation to us this morning um, to pay attention to self-care, but also that we're not our own source. I'm, I'm looking forward to this morning. I, I, uh, I think this teaching is important. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities maybe for insight that maybe you haven't heard before or aren't familiar with. I also want to say up front that this, this teaching has some history to it, which can be pretty disturbing um, and has themes that are, are, um, can be pretty abusive. There's also um, things in this history that is sexually abusive, um, both of women and of men. And uh, I just want you to be aware of that so you can um, care for yourself throughout this teaching. Pay attention to what um, is brought up for you, um, what feelings might be triggered. Um, you know, pay attention to the, the level of intensity of them. Um, but most of all, I... You know, with, with the, those warnings, I, I think there's some power here for us to understand the scriptures in a way that um, really are quite significant and um, liberating. Um, so I think there's like a, there's a, a uh, maybe a five course meal here. Um, that's going to have all kinds of dimensions, and some of the food is going to be um, hard to take, and some of it is going to be um, restorative. So all of that is, as a d disclaimer, I want you to know that I just feel so honored to be a part of this community and to engage in, in this this dialogue and interaction around the text with you I feel like is really sacred and um, an opportunity that I'm really grateful for. So we're going to begin in Romans chapter 1. Uh, most of our time will be in Romans uh, 1 and 2 uh, with uh, some other passages within this book and then it'll be some ancient um, history around the Roman emperors um, Roman thought in general, and what um, what might Paul be preparing? Uh, what kind of meal is Paul preparing? And this this image has been really helpful for me in approaching the scriptures. Um, I I think it became real in this past year as um, we just did a whole lot more cooking as as a family and um i i became a lover of preparing meals and i feel like that was a grace that i that i'm really grateful for so that's been a hobby for me but this image of meal creation and seeing um kind of the old and new testament as these sacred ingredients that we then get to employ for meals that can um bring life and um, salvation, in a sense, liberation in Christ, and also ingredients that you can use to make some pretty toxic meals that are, are harmful. So what kind of meal is Paul preparing is the question I want us to have as we enter this text. Like, what is, what is Paul up to is a question that I have. And seeing that meal and what it's trying to do, then I think can help us in like um, how might we use the ingredients in this book of Romans um, to create meals and also um, discern other meals that might be made from the ingredients of this text 
um, that do not produce the fruit of, of love and um, the Spirit of God. Okay. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I bolded a few things in here. So you have this lineage of Jesus, the calling of a title, Lord, appointed son of God. Um, so what meal is Paul preparing with these statements? And then I want to draw attention to the second part that I bolded. You also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I want to call this out that it is Gentiles and Gentile believers in Christ that's the primary audience of this letter. Um, some of the unlearning, um, if you're familiar with Rome, uh, Romans, some of the unlearning has to do with a Lutheran bias, that a lot of this was about um, uh, kind of a grievance of a Jewish boast of being superior, superior um, who are trying to earn their salvation through the law and um, not like us Gentiles who are saved by grace. That bias is so strong that it's difficult to see anything else um, in, in the letter. And I think there's been just a lot of good scholarship to um, maybe, maybe say that's actually not what's going on. And uh, Martin Luther really had his own bias um, to try to combat what he thought was a Catholic boast. Um, so there is a boast that's a part of this letter, but a lot of it is in regards to Gentile believers that felt that they were superior um, to the Jewish believers that were exiled out of Rome and now find themselves returning. Um, so Jews and Jewish Christians were scapegoated in the Roman Empire. And so um, we need to have this lens of who's the minority population here and who does society already marginalize and dismiss. And Paul is greatly concerned that that is happening in this, um, the congregation in Rome. So that's one of the meals that Paul is concerned about and how he's using scripture to help illuminate this problem. And then, of course, it is to the, the entire church, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that I notice in Paul's letters is he begins with love and belonging and then usually follows with a rebuke. But I think the rebuke and the repentance is all within the context of you can't be separated. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So it's like we all belong as family. So let me point out the ways in which we're living against that reality. So that's the beginning of the letter. And then I want to... Uh, you know, use this as a way to highlight some things that we usually miss that are going on. And again, if we don't have the rupture where the Bible is, the Bible is simply not a constitution that's there to um, tell us what to do. Um, once we let go of that, we can allow the scriptures to be what they are, this kind of sacred library and conversation of, of people at that time trying to figure out how to manifest themselves in the love of God. Um, 
And when once we 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 lose this idea that Romans is in sense a timeless constitution, um, we can then invest ourselves in what the context was uh, was and see some of the nuances. Um, so here's a illustration. Maybe some of you, um, you know, are old enough to remember this, but in the the two thousands presidential campaign. So we're going back 21 years. Nominee George W. Bush said he would restore honor and dignity to the White House. And if you remember that, but that was a big part of the campaign, that he would restore honor and dignity to the White House. So if you can remember back then, and the previous administration for the eight years before, George W. Bush, what unstated message is being communicated in that slogan? What honor and dignity might the listener be thinking needs to be restored? I remember kind of uh, in the early days of, of pastoring here, uh, I had a couple among others, you know, where it was, it felt traumatic to them that we were uh, including women in ministry and couldn't be pastors, felt concerned that we weren't preaching the gospel anymore. We were only talking about the kingdom of God and that felt radically different. Um, so they came concerned about that we were abandoning the truth um, and being culturally compromised. And one of the things that struck me while they were talking is the one gentleman said, you know, we finally got rid of the whore in the White House and now we have the potential to restore honor and dignity back to our country. And we should not, you know, um, I don't know, prostitute ourselves to the cultural norms. I mean, it was, it was striking language that I remember. Um, and of course, the whore of the White House he was referring to was former President Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. Um, and the, the language, you know, the severity of the language and kind of the, there was a superior, superiority to it and the judgment, the judgmentalism struck me as one that wasn't a sign of discernment but was a sign of kind of dismissal and disgust and contempt. And I, um, you know, so a noticing with that, you know, we, we can fast forward and this, this kind of same crew of people with these concerns kind of became a part of the same group that was very much in favor of the last president and thought, again, that that campaign and that administration was a part of restoring Christianity uh, within the country. So there was a superiority judgment that kind of led to a lack of discernment. So I, I want to, this story came to mind in in preparing for this this message because I think this is actually one of the meals that Paul is concerned about. Um, that there is a kind of contempt and superiority um, that leads to a lack of discernment which then cuts you off from what God is doing in the world and how to participate in what salvation really is. Okay. So hold that illustration, and I want to talk about other administrations 
these are there's a list of kind of the Roman emperors kind of through Christ and the Apostle Paul, okay? So these are the Roman emperors. These are the leaders of the world, basically, the known world at the time. And again, the idea is that Rome is the pinnacle of divine favor, divine justice, and peace. Um, and these emperors are sons of God who are administrating, the, um, you know, the renewal of all things and bringing salvation to the entire planet. Um, so this is a big backdrop into the whole letter. So Tiberius Caesar from AD 14 to 37, former son-in-law and adopted son of Augustus Caesar, son of God, declared by the Senate. Uh, when Tiberius retired to the island of Capri, he stocked the island with male and female sex slaves who were trained to perform every imaginable unnatural act. And he liked to watch threesomes. This is from the Roman historian Suetonius. And um, I'll go into this later, but unnatural sex acts has to do with any kind of sexual activity that's not procreative. Like that's not able to produce a child, and so that's unnatural. Uh, Caligula, AD 37 to 41, it was the grand nephew and adopted grandson of Tiberius. He declared himself son of God. He attempted to put a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple to be worshipped. Um, Again, Suetonius writes he's not satis he was not satisfied with his incestuous relationships with all of his sisters. He routinely pulled the wives of dinner guests from the table and noisily raped them in nearby rooms. He would then return to the table and criticize their performance in front of all the guests and their spouses. Um, I don't have this in the little write-up there. But as a fundraiser, he created a, uh, a brothel and he uh, basically took all of the Roman dignitaries' kids. He took the dignitaries' kids and made them the sex slaves in the brothel to raise uh, money. Uh, so in all accounts, Caligula was a, a very ruthless, um, crazed ruler. Um, he was then murdered by the Praetorian Guard. And um, one of the officers, military officers that he raped to humiliate, um, killed him by plunging his sword up through his genitals into his, you know, body cavity. That's how Caligula was murdered. Uh, Claudius, AD 41 to 54, uncle of Caligula, grandnephew of, of Augustus. He was proclaimed emperor by the Praetorian Guard, so it was a coup, and accepted son of God by the Senate. Uh, Claudius is known for expelling um, and removing all the Jews and Jewish Christians from Rome. Um, you can also see that reality in Acts chapter 18, 2, where Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila, who are Jewish believers who were expelled from the city of Rome. Claudius was poisoned by his wife Agrippina um, so that her son Nero could uh, assume the throne. Nero, uh, 8054 to 68, is the emperor at the time that Romans is written and thought to be the emperor who has uh, Peter and Paul executed in kind of Christian tradition. He's the adopted son of Claudius, great-great-grandson of Augustus, declared son of God by the Senate, who was a tyrant whose rapes of Roman wives and sons, brothel-keeping incest with his mother, and sexual submission to men and boys was called another Caligula by Seneca the philosopher. Nero committed suicide after the Senate declared him a public enemy of the empire. So this is the royal house, um, the representatives of Roman justice and uh, peace 
and of divine favor. So one of the big ideas uh, for Paul is to contrast the justice of God um, with the justice of the empire and to call in like that propaganda and appearance um, can harden your heart to be able to see what is actually going on. So again, when we see this beginning, the gospel he promised beforehand through the, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So it's like, how did Jesus become the divine representative? This is a very different lineage. The ancient prophets, the holy scriptures from long ago, a descendant of the royal line of David through the spirit of holiness, not through a coup, not through uh, poisoning, not through I'll adopt my nephew to be my son um, and then I'll be divinized and therefore there'll be a son of God. No, his credentials are he rose from the dead. You know, what's your credentials? So you see this contrast, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is a Roman title for an emperor. Um, there's a contrast here between God's justice and Roman justice. This, this brings us to then a pretty significant passage right here in the beginning. And Paul is, is setting up his big concern with the Gentile church. Okay, um, And I'll call this beginning in Romans 1 and, and 2 kind of general revelation. Paul's like, this should be clear to everyone. Um, and then he gets into more special revelation of like what the Torah does and reveals injustice at an even deeper level. Um, and why it's good, but also like why all of this is just revelation of the fact that we need a new spirit to enliven us, a new source, um, because there's all kinds of ways that being um, kind of sourced by a sin uh, corrupt us uh, from living the life of love that God wants. Okay. Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So it's like there's something being revealed. And like here in the backdrop, there's something that the royal house of the empire of justice is revealing, but it's not justice. It's revealing wickedness and not the justice of God, but the actual wrath of God is being put on display. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So this is like just a general revelation. Like you should be able to see that and know that's not good. That's not just, that's not salvation. And then he draws this parallel in the next chapter. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, do not have um, the Torah, do my, by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and other times defending them. So you can see, like, there's an... There's an appearance of like, you can know what justice, love, peace, faith, and fidelity are. And um, you don't have to ha have grown up Jewish to know those things. You, you can look around. And you also could be able to look around and say, that's actually, those emperors are not putting on display righteousness. They're putting on display wrath. Big idea. 
big meal that Paul is uh, making. What is declared as justice and an devil? Peace to you by the empire is a fiction. They call you to give allegiance and faith to the empire so you will receive its salvation. This is a deceptive illusion. Look at the royal house. This is not a revelation of righteousness or divine favor. It is a revelation of wickedness and divine wrath. Even Josephus in Jewish, uh, Jewish war was trying to convince the zealots that God's divine favor rests over the Roman Empire, so they shouldn't resist it. So there's like this might and prosperity equals God's favor and God's justice for the world. Um, and that you could actually believe that propaganda Paul is saying we've, we've got to wake up to that. Like this is clearly a revelation of wrath, not righteousness. Paul continues, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So, um, Paul is illustrating that God's, what God's wrath looks like is allowing people to kind of go their way, to let go of them. Um, so it's not God's letting them off the hook or um, they have impunity to do whatever they want. So that was a big idea. If you're in charge, you have impunity. You are over the law. You get to do whatever you want and still call it goodness. Um, no. No, actually that handing over and that just like plumbing, plummeting into moral depravity is a sign that things aren't right. Um, and God is not for that. So this next section is what ends up a lot of times being clobber, clobber passages for gay and lesbian people. And um, again, I, I want us to see what meal Paul is making here and seeing if using these ingredients as a condemnation of gay people is actually a responsible meal that you can make out of it. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. So I want to share, this is a quote from a Roman orator at the time, Dio Chrysostom. I don't know how to say his name. Uh, but it gives kind of interesting insight and kind of like what was in, in the air at the time. So uh, even Romans had an understanding of what shameful lusts were. And the idea of um, sexuality at the time or the passions or sexual desire was kind of things that were inbounds and then desires that just kind of became exatiated. It's almost like a, a debauchery of sexual desire. And there really wasn't at this time a notion of orientation. That doesn't 
mean that LGBTQ people didn't exist then. They did, but those categories didn't. And so it was like not even in view to be able to frame it this way. Um, so it's just like the universe at that time, the earth revolved around the sun, not the sun revolving around the earth, but those categories of understanding weren't in view and so not, it didn't frame reality. So this is Roman orator Dio Chrysostom. The man whose appetite is insatiate in such things, when he finds there is no scarcity, no resistance in this field, will have contempt for the easy conquest and scorn for a woman's love. I'll just let you kind of digest that for a second. We'll have contempt for the easy conquest and scorn for a woman's love as a thing too readily given. In fact, too utterly feminine. So you see in this Roman mind, men are superior to women. Men um, dominate women. Um, sex is a conquest of power. Uh, and for some whose sexual desires were just, could not be satiated, it was like the conquest was too easy, they would explore other options and will turn his assault against the male quarters, eager to befoul the youth who will very soon be magistrates and judges and generals. So a lot of this is like royal families or those with means, who they would kind of uh, put in their place. Uh, so then when they did become magistrates and judges and generals, there would kind of be like that ranking was already established um, of someone they could control. Believing that in them he will find a kind of pleasure difficult and hard to procure, his state is like that of men who are addicted to drinking and wine-bibbing, who long after and steady drinking of unmixed wine often lose their taste for it and create an artificial thirst by the stimulus of sweating, salted foods, salted foods and condiments. It's like they... They need more. That is the idea of shameful lust. So again to this passage, the beginning verse, this is uh, Romans 1, 26. God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Again, sec natural sexual relations in the ancient world referred to procreative intercourse and sexual relations that demonstrated men's dominance over women. Sex was something that men did to women, not something women did to men. Uh, St. Augustine wrote in the fourth century that a man having sex with a prostitute while not praiseworthy or moral was still according to nature. But if one has relations even with one's wife in a part of the body which was not made for begetting children, such relations are against nature and indecent. That was very much a part of uh, the worldview at the time. So let's again look at this verse. God gave them over to the sh to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So I want to highlight the there. So you s see even in, in this passage that women are referred to only in their relationship to their like property to their men, even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Uh, again, Emperor Caligula lived in perpetual incest with all of his sisters 
and at a large banquet he placed each of them in turn below him, while his wife reclined above, Suetonius, Roman historian. Um, and aside from that, like, spectacle, any sex act that wasn't procreative was unnatural. Uh, so, and uh, who it was, if it was an unnatural, like, a sister in incestuous relationship would be unnatural. But a woman on top is unnatural because that is women doing sex to men or oral sex is an unnatural act. Uh, as Augustine said, any sex in an orifice that doesn't produce a child is an unnatural act. Um, the woman, his wife, reclining above watching this it was like this kind of odd um asymmetry that was considered unnatural um, but all all of that when you see like this kind of like shocking you know picture was that first christian commentators did not consider that this verse would refer to sex between women it doesn't even show up until the the fourth century that that might be included in these unnatural relations. It was women doing sex acts to men rather than men doing sex acts to them. Um, and uh, I don't know. Do I need to say anything else about that? Maybe, but I'm going to move on. In the same way... The men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, when I was growing up in the 80s, um, this passage was made to be obviously about homosexuality and the penalty they received for that was AIDS. So... I mean, I picked that up in my own tradition growing up. Now, that's an interesting way to use the ingredients of Romans. Uh, but I, I don't know how you could be a Roman Gentile and not have Caligula in your mind in this whole passage. Who made a military officer submit to him and humiliated him by raping him. And then that Praetorian guard was a part of a coup that drove a sword through his privates to kill him. You know, um, if we hear a presidential campaign that says, I'm going to restore honor and dignity to the White House and have like a very specific incident in mind, um, this, you know, I would, I would say it isn't the whole of what this passage is about, but the resonances, the echoes are there. And this whole passage is really to illustrate crazy abuses, general revelation of wickedness, right? We can all agree <laughs> this is insanity, right? Um, that kind of behavior as um, craziness and awfulness. It was true then. We would hopefully say the same for today. Again, more on this. In the ancient world, sexuality was readily perceived as a medium of power. Sexual penetration normally rehearsed the prerogative of the freeborn male enjoyed over the bodies of others. So in Greco-Roman society, the freeborn male really had the right to penetrate whomever he wanted, male or female. Um, and it was a demonstration of power over. Same-sex sex generally took place within relationships characterized by inequities of power, the use of prostitutes, the abuse of slaves, and pederasty. It's the abuse of children and boys. Um, so this 
this next slide is is some of the history of Nero, and um, it's it. I, I find it um, among all of this disturbing. So care for yourselves in this. After Emperor Nero beat his wife Sabina to death, so you see that physical violent abuse of, of a woman uh, and of an emperor killing his wife, he fell for Sporus, who was a boy slave who had an uncanny resemblance to her. So he had him castrated and made him his spouse. So you see all of the abuse and sexual violence that gets like entangled. Um, and again, coming from the highest office, that propaganda to the world is, you know, the most just, lawful um, bringer of salvation and peace to the known world. Sporus was then passed to several other Roman men after Nero's suicide. Sporus was going to be used to depict the rape of Proserpina, which is a, a Greek myth, and you can see that picture to the right, in a gladiator show, which he only avoided by taking his own life. So I, I see this, this whole story as, is just absolutely devastating. The, the abuse of a boy, uh, the abuse of a, of a woman. So again, if you use these ingredients as a condemnation, you know, for like today, like what are you condemning and on what merit and is it a responsible use of these texts? I'll pause here for a moment. One thought I have in that growing up, we were taught to equate all of these acts, abuses of power, were no more harmful than loving relationships between equals in our minds. Yeah, there is a false equivalence um, that was made here. Elias uh, says, I keep thinking about how Christians lament that the world is getting more corrupt sexually perverse, I want them to study history somewhere, right? Yeah. Thanks for that word. All right. I want to, you know, so if you've got this contrast, you, you see Paul right away. I want to tell you about the lineage of Jesus, appointed son of God and the power of his resurrection. Um, with the other royal house. And then I want to say what is given as propaganda as peace and justice and salvation is actually a revelation of God's wrath about wickedness. So he continues. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, god-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. So you see, this is like, they have no understanding. They set themselves up as wisdom. They have no fidelity. Yet they say the Roman Empire is one of fidelitous love. So you honor us, we honor you. No love, no mercy. So Nero presented himself as merciful because he reversed the edict of, Cla of, of Claudius to, um, bring, to allow Jews back into the city of Rome. 
But Paul's saying none of this is a demonstration of righteousness. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So this is, is the, the soup of Romans chapter 1. Pause here. Also taught that one must lead, uh, lead to another. One must lead to another. We were raised to believe loving homosexual relationships were a gateway to abuse, pedophilia, and bestiality. Ab absolutely. And I, you know, I taught it as much. Um, so to my own lack of discernment and, and shame, which I think is part of the meal that Paul is trying to prevent, that um, our judgments can easily be deceived and we could become hard-hearted um, and not loving towards one another while feeling uh, morally superior. Uh, but I said as much as a youth pastor at a, at, at, in, in a teaching. Um, and it's one I, I deeply regret and wish could take back. Now, here becomes like an interesting shift. When you turn the page to Romans chapter 2, so he finishes with that revelation of God's wrath and says, You, therefore, have no excuse. And I'm, uh, again, I'm going to try to reverse the Lutheran bias. I don't think the you here is talking about Jewish Christians. I think he's talking about Gentile Christians. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment. Do the same things. Now, that's, it's, that's an interesting, like, do this. I don't, I don't do the same things. So we want to ask, like, what does that mean? So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realize, realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So there's a sense of like, I'm morally superior as a, a say, a Gentile Christian who renounces the way of the disgusting Gentiles um, I knew and also feels morally superior to the Jews that were exiled and now coming back who they, they're under law not under grace so it was like both ways and feeling like and we have prosperity and we have you know the affection of the empire in a way that the Jewish believers do not um, we can take that um, I things are going well for me as somehow God's favor, just like the Roman emperors did. But instead, he says, no, God's kindness and forbearance of you and patience is that you it would hopefully lead to repentance. <laughs> Like, don't look for, like, a reward and punishment system to help you discern reality. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. So there's no impunity here. And that was big in the Roman Empire and for people in power feel like they can get away with anything and still say they're a model of justice and love. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, you will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, I want to say this phrase, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles, all throughout Romans, 
And again, because the primary audience, I believe, is Gentile Christians, he's trying to reverse their thinking that God cut the Jews off and has accepted them, and now they're like the, the chosen ones uh, that, that God loves. And so he's always reminding no, this is first for the Jew, and even like... Um, uh, God's going to repay everyone, everyone according to what they were, were, what they do. That's for the Jew and the Gentile. God hasn't like somehow punished the the Jews more than you or something because of the exile. No, um, I want you to have a new discernment and understanding of reality. Uh, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. And so this is a, a big theme and meal Paul is trying to present. So this whole setup, you already feel morally superior to the wickedness um, that's like personified, like in cartoonish, gross details by the Roman Empire. Uh, but your judgment and superiority over your Jewish brothers and sisters, thinking you're so strong and you're of grace and they're of law and uh, all of that, and of your, your uh, Romans who haven't believed the gospel, that darkens your mind. Um, so one way that you could uh, summarize this, that I'll, I'll summarize it this way, is that Paul is concerned about a Gentile boast that is a product of Roman superiority. So it's like that's in the air already. We're the best people. And then you add to that the patriarchy on top of that. Men are the best. And Roman men are the best of best and can slay, enslave others, can have sex who, for whoever they want. Um, God, so this, this comes kind of Romans 9 through 11. God does not cut the Jews off in favor of, of the Gentiles. In fact, Paul uses that same word unnatural to say if God's action does something unnatural in grafting this um, wild olive branch, the Gentiles, into the tree. Um, and so he's like, who, who is more at risk? The Jews who are part of the original tree, native to it? Or you Gentiles who think that you're, you're superior? God does something unnatural in bringing you into the fold. Um, and what might be um, uh, a Jewish resistance to the gospel is only that it's allowing you the the opportunity to see and experience it. So you should always be thankful uh, to your bro uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, and you should even be grateful for the law that's like goes beyond this general revelation of wickedness. Um, and then in chapter seven, it's like the law reveals like covetousness, and that superiority goes deep in us. And like, oh, woe is woe is me. Who can save me from like this sinful uh, condition? So that's kind of this whole of the letter that Paul is concerned about. I think the big meal he's, he's, he's uh, preparing. Paul highlights the sin of superiority and asserting oneself in one's group at the expense of others because it is destroying the people of God and the inclusion of the Jewish believers now returning back to Rome um, a minority group that's already been scapegoated, this Gentile church should not make the same superior mistake. He is training them to discern correctly so they can fulfill the law of love. So see this big meal towards the end of the letter. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, God's mercy, not Nero's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there's a, there's a judgment that's based in contempt and superiority that hardens your hearts and leads you on the same destructive path as those that you hold as like God-awful people, right? But there is a transformation that leads to a discernment of what is actually good and pleasing and perfect. And this I commend to you. But it, it's not to the domination narrative. Don't conform to that pattern in any way that you're drinking out of in this empire called Rome. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And finally, we'll close with this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen. So I... I know that's a ton to drop in on a very dense letter already, but I hope this has been helpful uh, for you in, in thinking through the meal that Paul is making. And then how would we take the ingredients 2,000 years later um, and leading us to these central understandings of of a new mind, ability to discern what is really good, just, and true, and what does harm to a neighbor? How do we discern that and stop doing it? Um, and I just want to, you know, publicly repent of the ways that in the past I've used these texts as a way that has done great harm to the LGBTQ community in ways that aren't in view um, in this passage and to equivalent um, them with some of the most, uh, you know, gross abuses of behavior that are supposed to be obvious general revelation of what is awful and should be avoided, to then say that must be uh, our LGBTQ siblings, um, I've, I feel like is an absolute failure of uh, Christian discernment and a failure to fulfill the law of love. Um, so for ways that our siblings have been injured and hurt by the history of the church and um, uh, in my own life, may times of refreshing come. And may we um, learn in these next several weeks, too, how we can make better meals for all of our neighbors. <sighs> Amen. I invite you to inhale and exhale. Difficult passages, um, helpful to rethink these in context of the domination system that existed. Yeah, we'll continue that work in the next weeks to come. Peace to you all. Pat, you're welcome. Thank you for the continued renewing of my mind. You are so welcome. Thank you, tough stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, you... I don't know, this history is, is disturbing. Um, and there to call us to discernment and not a superior judgment um, is going to be important for us. All right, I'll close there. Thank you again. I know these last several weeks and will continue to be kind of lengthy and dense. So I appreciate your perseverance with me. Amen. I'll share my screen. Let's finish in the renewing meal of Jesus. 
Again, go ahead and get elements to share in this meal. Again, as we enter this time, if there's things of prayer that you would like us as a community to hold with you, post them in the chat. If there's, um, you know, if you feel like you need to do some kind of like public repentance, uh, if this passage has, has brought things to mind for you or even throughout the next several weeks as we, we do that, I want to encourage you, like, I feel like it's important for us to recognize that we've all been on journeys, that we didn't show up with like perfect understanding um, and that we can actually own the ways that we've maybe gotten it wrong um, and that we want to, that there will be ways that we'll continue to not um, get things right, but that Christ offers us repentance uh, turning and a renewing of a new spirit. Like it is, it's actually this really beautiful pattern of like chains kind of coming off of ourselves and what we've bound up on others that we, that can be loosed. Um, and a new spirit of life can be given. So I wish that for all of you.